0: Hello, and welcome to the R Beck podcast. R Birkbeck is an exciting year long initiative to share and showcase the impact members of the Birkbeck community are having around the world. In this podcast series, you'll hear from our alumni, students, staff and friends, whether they are making a difference in their community, bringing about change to their industry or shaping the lives of those around them. We celebrate their story. To find out more about the R Birkbeck initiative, please visit campaign.bbk.ac.uk. In this episode of the Our Birkbeck podcast, Helen Shaw from Beck's Development and Alumni Team interviews Beck alumnus Sean O'Kaneen. <laughs>
1: Hi, I'm Helen Shaw, I'm Deputy Director of Development and Alumni at Birkbeck and welcome to this, our Birkbeck podcast. I'm joined today by MSc European Politics alumnus, Sean O'Kaneen. He is the Secretary General of the Renew Europe Group and is based in Brussels. Thank you so much Sean for joining us today Um, and I'll hand over to you to, to tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, Helen, a uh, pleasure to meet you and, of course, uh, all of those who will be listening, hopefully, to, to this podcast. It's a real pleasure to be part of this really inspiring and excellent initiative by, by Birkbeck. Um, well, a little bit about myself. I um, am half Spanish, half Irish. I was uh, brought up in Spain. I went to uh, British school in Spain, primary and secondary, And the logical uh, step afterwards um, from that was to study university in the UK. Uh, So I studied astronomy at UCL uh, in the late 1980s. And UCL is practically next door to Birkbeck. So from very early on, I was very much aware about Birkbeck and uh, walked past it a million times, went in a few times, and even new people who were studying there. Um, After the degree, I decided actually to change career completely, and I went to France to study journalism. And I then started working as a journalist in Paris, in the English language section of Radio France International, from which I then moved to BBC in London. And after a few years at the BBC, I decided I wanted to see politics from the other side, and uh, just at that time, so 1999, 2000, um, the May, the Greater London Authority was being established, and they needed press officers, and I got a job as part of the team there. And I soon realised, and also wanted um, to do so, but I realised that it would be really good if I was going to work in politics to have a sound academic backing, in uh in or a sound foundation in. In politics and I had always been interested in politics even when I was determined to study astronomy so I thought okay this is the moment to to really um, get the academic foundation and I thought of Birkbeck as I mentioned earlier I'd always known about Birkbeck and I thought it was the perfect place for me to um, study while I was working. And I looked at the course, the European politics, uh, since I have such a European background myself, um, I just thought that's, that's really perfect for me. And I was able to get in and and study it for two years. And then, um, well, after four years at working with the mayor of London or for the mayor of London, um, I heard of an opportunity in Brussels and I applied. And that was 16 years ago. I got offered the job. Um, I should, just, uh, I should just say that um, I'm secretary-general of the Renew Europe Group in the European Committee of the Regions, and we'll talk more about what the Committee of the Regions is. But there is another secretary-general of the Renew Europe Group in the European Parliament. So there are two political groups. Um, we're sister groups, if you want. We have a lot of contact. We both represent uh, liberal politicians from all over um, uh, the European Union. But there is a counterpart with a very similar title, but in a a different institution. So I'm the one in the European Committee of the Regions, and I've been here now since
1: 2004. I'm glad you corrected that, in case it was kind of one of those where it's you know giving you totally different remit. There, but it's good to know that you're actually quite sister kind of organisations. No,
2: no worries. A lot of people happens to a lot of people. No worry, (laughs) (laughs) even in Brussels.
1: Well, that's at least good to know. it's you honestly have had it's such an an interesting journey going from astronomy to journalism and through now into the kind of politics and, and very much the other side of of politics Um and it would be great to kind of understand it sounds like there's you know obviously the European Union being a huge quite complex institution it would be great to know a little bit more about kind of the work that you do, and I know that you you represent city mayors, regional presidents and ministers, uh, local and regional councillors. But what does this kind of involve, and, and how does it actually translate to impact for people in in their communities?
2: Okay, well, actually, the European Community of the Regions is the youngest of the EU institutions. It was set up in one thousand, nine hundred and ninety four with the Maastricht Treaty, and it was set up in response to something that became um, uh, a, a problem, an issue, and that was that a lot of EU laws were having to be uh, first implemented um, at the subnational level. That's by regional government, by local government as well. So it was recognized that they should have a say, that their point of view should be considered. Um, before enacting the laws, so at its very basic, um, uh, it's very at the very basic level, its function is to ins- is to give voice to subnational government of the EU. There are about ninety thousand local and regional authorities around the EU, almost one million, um, or approximately one million local and regional elected politicians. And they are responsible collectively for one half of public investment in the EU, one third of public expenditure and one quarter of tax revenue. So when you think of it that way, you realize that the political objectives of the European Union cannot be achieved without a meaningful partnership with subnational government. So, That The role of the European Committee of the Regions is to make sure that um, the EU decision-makers are in touch with the ground, with what's happening on the ground. And therefore, to make sure that local communities, um, their interests, their point of view, the diversity, the huge diversity that there is around Europe, is taken into account at the point of drafting legislation. and, and and taking uh, and, and making policy proposals. So, our, our direct um, task is to represent all of those local and regional politicians from around the EU, but indirectly through them to ensure that the citizens, in all their diversity around Europe, are um, in touch or are heard or listened to in the process of European legislation. And specifically my, my task is uh, to ensure that the, um, that the ones who fit in the liberal political family, so we function a bit like a parliament, we have political groups, all of these mayors and regional politicians have been elected according to their national political party. And those of them who fit within the liberal um, political group um, I manage the secretariat that provides support to them for their work to carry out their work.
1: Wow, it's, it's potentially sounds quite ignorant, but I had no idea that, that. It was that it sounds, you know, as you say, kind of like one third of of, of expenditure in terms of over kind of a million local kind of elected. People, it gets huge, and it's really fascinating to kind of get an insight into some of the complexities that I think, from if I say it now, from an external perspective in the UK, um, is is really interesting to just how such a kind of huge and complex institution works, and and what that means, and as you say, making sure that from the ground up, people's voices are still being heard and, and represented in legislation that ultimately affects how they are, they are governed at a local and national level. So
2: it's a monumental task, um, mm-hmm. but it's not an impossible one. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, while the UK was a member of the EU, uh, we had British members as well who were incredibly active uh, in, uh, from all political parties in the UK, um, and who were incredibly active, incredibly constructive, and made a major contribution. Now, there's a huge amount of work to be done still, representing 90,000 local authorities and regional authorities and approximately 1 million uh, elected representatives is not something that you can achieve overnight. Uh, The institution has been around for 25 years. I've been here for 16. Every year has been different. Every year has been different. Um, And every year we have grown in one way or another. So, we continue to um, improve our ability and our capacity to represent what's happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, w- one of the biggest things, and it was actually a British MEP who said this to me once um, sometimes the European Parliament is um, legislating blindly without really having a, a, a sufficiently good knowledge of what the situation is on the ground, how necessary is this legislation, or if it is necessary, if we do know it is necessary, in what way it should be adapted or tweaked. Um, and, And therefore, he said, that's where you guys at the Committee of the Regions can really bring to the European level a picture of what the situation is on the ground. Whatever the topic may be, whether it's biodiversity or integration of migrants or um uh, smes small businesses culture education anything like that so that is really our task our task is to bring to the european level a picture of what is happening on the ground so that the decision makers can can make more informed decisions and better legislation And, and there's of course there's always more to do always more to do and and one looks back and there's frustration that we couldn't have done more five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but the task is huge. It is, it is a large democracy. Um, and it's still under construction. And we are going in the right direction. And I'm always, uh, I'm, I'm still very much confident that um, it is not an impossible task. And we are getting there. We are getting there.
1: I love that you, you kind of framed that as, you know, it's this huge democracy and it is is continually being built. I think that's such an such a refreshing way to look at something which could be seen as kind of, uh, you know, quite a a bureaucratic, immovable piece. But to almost hear how you talk about with such passion around the kind of actual, the nimbleness in which these things need to be, implemented at local levels and the way that there is continual change as you said and every day is different and is that really what keeps you kind of motivated and and is it a bigger piece around that that kind of keeps you coming back and and making that progress every day towards what is not an impossible task but keeping you kind of going and pushing forward with that
2: absolutely um you know when i I, I, I didn't come to this job expecting I would be here for sixteen years uh, you know up and up until up until this point, I had never been in a job for longer than four, so I thought, well, I assumed that average will continue when I reached eight years in this job, I started to think surely it's going to start to get repetitive um, and no, here I am another eight years later, and as I say, every year has been different, and it's just um incredibly stimulating because something that is um under construction as the european union still is Mm. and the european democracy still is um is it's constantly changing of course there have been major crises, and everybody knows about the crisis but few people know about the uh, successes because for some reason um we don 't buy newspapers to read about success or we don't <laughs> we don't go on we don't buy a newspaper or online subscriptions to read about success that's part of human nature for some reason um, but there has been uh, tremendous tremendous developments and my my job involves and not just my job but colleagues in the committee of the regions involves three aspects that really um, it's like I'm wearing three hats and one day it's one, one day it's the other, one day it's the other. Sometimes it's all three. And that's what I find so stimulating about this job. And one is is that it's a contribution to building the union of Europeans. Um, I know that makes some people, especially in Britain, um, nervous to hear that. But you just have to look at why the European Union started. It came out of... Uh, a terrible war, two terrible wars. And there was a recognition that that should never, ever, ever happen again. And the only way to achieve that was to intertwine these nations in such a way that they could never and would never want to fight against each other. So, but furthermore, there is a reality, which is that we all have multiple identities and we all, whether we like it or not, whether we recognize it or or not, we all have european dimension to our identity and the european union is about giving um uh, or translating that in a real way and giving those people who do feel in touch with the european dimension of their identity the possibility to experience that the possibility to uh, develop that either professionally or personally so that's one one side of uh, one dimension of of my my job the other the other part we've just touched upon is strengthening european democracy itself i did my thesis at Birkbeck uh on uh, democratic disaffection um in general but also how it might manifest itself in the european union and that thesis is something and and what i learned writing that thesis is something that I have used so frequently in my job here in, in the committee of the regions and within the Renew Europe group, um, developing projects, sharing information, researching it for, for the members, for the mayors, um, drafting declarations, etc. So, and you know, the European democracy that it gets criticized, um, there are flaws in it, but it is a democracy. You know, citizens vote for their members of the European Parliament. In in the UK, it's very similar. You you don't vote for your prime minister. You vote for the member of parliament. Um, In in the European elections, you vote for the member of the European parliament. And then uh, the laws are decided by the members of the European parliament and the national governments who have been chosen by their citizens. Mm. So those two... um, uh, it's it's uh, have democratic legitimacy directly from their voters, and they are the ones who jointly come up with the laws and the decisions. And one uh, huge aspect of this, of course, is ensuring that that whole layer of democracy at the subnational level is adequately represented. And that's where uh, I'm very happy to be contributing to strengthening that side of. European democracy. And then finally, another aspect of my job, which gives this huge diversity to it, is um, promoting political liberalism. Um, I know a lot of people listening may not uh, be in tune or have their own ideas. Liberalism is something that is very misunderstood and it means different things in different countries. In some countries, it means very right wing, in others, it means very left wing. But broadly speaking, at European level, what it means is the political philosophy that tries to ensure that every individual is able to fulfill their potential and we defend with equal interest and equal strength uh, on the one hand economic uh, freedom but always protecting the weakest and on the other hand we defend uh, individual freedom so that everyone is free to express themselves however they are. And that's at the most basic level what political liberalism is, and I'm passionate about that. So, those three things, I'm all passionate. I'm passionate about all three, and I have the good fortune of being able to um, contribute in some way or another in my job, almost on a daily basis to all three. That's
1: fantastic, brilliant. And I mean, we've we've kind of touched on. I mean. What could be kind of, you know, considered the the hot topic or elephant in the room here, we've kind of touched on a little bit in terms of the UK and the, the EU relationship. Obviously, so the UK has now left the EU. The how this relationship going forward is just kind of starting off. And there certainly seems to have been some difficulties uh to start with. Long term, how do you kind of see the relationship between the UK and the, the EU developing?
2: Um, that's that's a very interesting question, of course, because everyone is sort of immersed in the short term uh, and the day to day roller coaster of of this of this um, of this story. I think to look forward, one has to look back a little bit, um, because I'm of the opinion that most of the people who've tried to analyze why Brexit happened have actually missed the point. Um, so let me take a minute or two just to explain what, what my understanding or my interpretation, my, my theory is as to why, why Brexit happened. You see, throughout the 20th, uh, 20th century, the European Union offered solutions to three or four um, existential challenges that different nation states in, uh, the, in Europe were facing. Uh, the first one was the threat of invasion. The second one was protecting budding democracies, new democracies that were just getting off the ground, and 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 were very very weak and very well, vulnerable. The third existential challenge was for those smaller countries who have a very dominant neighbor. And the fourth was prosperity. Post-war Europe, of course, was, was, was in dire straits, and um, economic development was, was a major consideration, a major priority for all of these countries. So, if you look at those four existential problems that different nations in Europe were facing, the EU provided a solution, or, uh, or European integration, of course, it wasn't always called the EU, but European integration provided a solution to some of the to all of those four challenges now if you look at the at the time 28 member states before the uk left and you analyzed each one of these challenges for every single one of the 28 except britain the eu was providing a solution to two of those or let me rephrase that Every single one of those nations was facing at least two of those challenges and therefore found that the EU was a solution to those existential questions, except Britain. Britain was only facing one of them because if you look at the threat of invasion, Britain was never invaded. Britain, of course, suffered during the war and Britain, of course, always wanted peace in Europe, its experience of the war was different to those that had been invaded and suffered tremendously. Um, Protection of a budding democracy. Well, Britain is one of the oldest parliamentary democracies in the world. Therefore it didn't need the EU for that, uh, to to have its, to protect its democracy. it, protection of a dominant neighbor, well, it's not like Finland or, or the Baltics uh, who have Russia on their borders. And you, when you could argue that Britain is quite dominant in, in its little corner of, of Europe, even though it, it probably sees eye to eye with France and, and Germany, but it wasn't really an issue. So you come to prosperity, the fourth challenge. And yes, that was a, a major concern for for Britain, post-war Europe, and even up until recently, Britain has always been interested in the single market, but all the other aspects of the European Union, the political union, were not something that, that, that Britain needed. Mm-hmm. So now you look at the future. So sorry, just to finish, I think therefore that kind of explains why Britain's attachment to the European Union was was and is much weaker than than in other countries and is, in my opinion, um, the main reason why so many voted to to leave, a majority voted to leave. But now you look at the future and you say, okay, to answer your question, what are relations going to be like? Well, the big existential questions and challenges that nations face now in, in the world and in the 21st century are related to the climate crisis, global finances, where you have major players which are, bigger than nation-states, economic uh, powers or or, or companies that call the shots. The same happens with big tech and artificial intelligence, companies which are actually dictating the terms to national governments. Um, You have international terrorism, the rise of authoritarianism, massive flows of migration. And all of these are huge challenges. And what you have with the Brexit movement is uh, the leaders of the Brexit movement, they believe that these challenges are, are best addressed from the nation state level. Whereas a majority in the EU believe that these challenges exceed the capacity and strength of any nation state in the EU and that it's, and that it's by coming together and giving and having the political clout and weight of a political union like the European Union, that these nation states are better protected uh, when faced with these 21st century challenges. So what we have therefore looking to the future relationship between Britain and the EU is two models, two very different models about how to face the 21st century. And so the relationship between the two will be driven by those two models and sometimes the interests between the two will converge and things will go smoothly and sometimes they will diverge and then tensions will flare up but but i believe that that uh the the the, how relations between the two evolve over time have to be looked at through that prism definitely and you know you
1: we Talk before touched upon the work that the, the European Committee of Regents has kind of done previously with with the UK kind of subnational government. And do you think that will that will continue? Do you think that relationship will continue to exist to change shape a little bit? How will that on a kind of that level kind of make a difference?
2: I'm very happy to say that the relationship will continue to exist, but of course it will, it will change. Um, for a lot of people in in Britain and in Europe uh, are are not aware of the the role that their mayor or that their local authority or that their regional government plays at a European level. And the number of projects that go on, exchange of best practice, um, joint initiatives, uh, cultural business exchanges, uh, policy proposals, that goes on, and of course, that went on between um, British subnational authorities and, uh, and and counterparts across the whole whole of the EU. So, uh, both sides have a very strong interest in maintaining relations, um, and in fact, we have set up a UK contact group that we call. Uh, it's it's a working group which brings together representatives of. Uh, The Scottish, the Welsh, the Northern Irish devolved governments, um, the London Assembly, and the local government associated their respective local government associations. The idea is to meet at least twice a year. There's already been two meetings during the transition period last year. There's already been one meeting this year. There'll be another one later in the year. And um, from from the British side, there's a great interest in in great interest in, in following how things are developing for subnational government in the EU, because of course, for 40 years, British subnational government has been um, implementing EU legislation. A lot of it is still functioning, still operational, still makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So um, subnational government in the UK wants to know what other good ideas might emerge (laughs) Uh, on the other side and, and therefore, um, or or just simply be in touch with how legislation and policies are are evolving um, to maybe pick and choose uh, what they like. From the EU side, um, especially the countries that uh, are neighboring countries to the UK, either with a land border or a land connection such as the Eurotunnel or just uh, along the the English Channel and and the North Sea. Um, There are lots of coastal areas there that that historically, going back centuries, have had strong ties with the UK and they want to keep those ties. So we will maintain cultural links, scientific uh, business links, but within the constraints... Of the new relationship which will of course not be as free as it has been up until now and so some things will no longer be possible others may be possible but in a different way and that's what we're exploring but in any case the 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 dialogue uh, is is there and will be maintained and there's a lot of interest to keep it going. Fantastic
1: and I mean As you say, a lot of people, especially a lot of people in the UK, myself included, weren't really ever aware of some of this that went on at at, at this kind of like subnational level. And what would your kind of advice be for people, students, people considering kind of thinking more about either working in this space or getting more politically active in this space, how would you suggest that they kind of identify and and kind of get involved with this in general? Just how would they even start to think about that?
2: Well, I take it you mean about uh, having involvement in the European Union and... Not just referring to British
1: citizens. Yes, across yeah. the board. Yep, across wherever the board, they yeah. are locally.
2: Wherever they are. Yeah. Well, um, well, that's a very good question because one of the things that we're we're trying to do um, is develop a network of local councillors. In every the, the the objective is that it should be in every municipality around the EU. Of course, well, we may never reach that uh, goal, but. You have to start uh, with uh, ambitious goals uh, and then you'll, you'll get as far as possible. But the idea is that in every local council around the EU, one um, councillor, one member of the council should be designated to be the liaison, direct liaison with uh, European affairs. In other words, what... One of the things that I didn't mention at the start was that the Committee of the Regions was set up uh, to give a voice to local and regional authorities, but also, also to bring Europe closer to the citizens and citizens closer to the European Union. Um, Because when you have elected representatives taking decisions on your behalf, and because of the way the media uh, the media scene is very fragmented in europe information that gets to the citizens is very very patchy Mm
1: -hmm.
2: so we have experimented over the years in many different ways and and one thing that we're we're now really developing is is this idea of having a local councillor, just one in every council who is in charge of on the one hand following what's happening at european level that might be relevant to uh His or her village, his or her town, his or her her, um, uh, large city, and then has the task of relaying that information to the local community. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But it's a two way thing. So that person would also know which buttons to press, which numbers to call in order to express the interests, the ideas, uh, the concerns from their local community. Now, obviously in a way that kind of functions already through the channels, official channels that exist through your MEPs, your members in the committee of the regions, through your national government. But of course, we've seen over the years, that's not enough. That's not enough. You know, you you really need to extend the possibilities for engagement much wider than the official channels and open up in unofficial or informal channels of communication uh, that didn't exist before. So that's one way of doing so. How, how does that relate to your question? Well, that means that people who are interested in getting involved in this, they can either go into local politics themselves. Um, They can of course try to become an MEP, but the number of MEPs is, is very limited. But if they go into local politics, they should realize that actually local politics is not just local; it's also European, and therefore, by going into local politics, they can become active at the European level as well. Or citizens who want to be part of this can, um, you know, a lot of people criticize the European Union for not uh, for, for not being transparent. Actually, it's one of the most transparent decision makers in the world. Just have to go to the website a lot of people don't know this, but you go to the website and you will find so much information there. Not all of it in, in every language, but nowadays the online translators are incredible. Um, the information is there. It's, it's um, it, there really is no excuse for not knowing what's being decided on behalf of citizens. And the other thing I would say to, related to the UK is, you know, the geography has not changed. The UK is still at the doorstep of the EU and the EU is still right there next to the UK. Um, So British, young British people, or not just young British people, but anyone who is interested interested in the relations between the UK and the EU uh, can get involved and should get involved. Because the more we know of each other, the more that relationship will develop in a positive way and so as i say the geography has not changed
1: brilliant that's fantastic and um, and i have one one last question for you and it's purely birkbeck related but probably okay. you know you've talked about kind of your birkbeck journey what's motivated you and how you've gone on from there to to utilize your, your birkbeck experience and your degree but also just incredibly varied and diverse work you do on a daily basis. And for you, I mean, you know, taking the time to kind of come back and chat to us now, what do you think it is that makes the Birkbeck community so special?
2: I I absolutely loved every minute that I was a student at, at Birkbeck. Um, and in some ways I was sad when it when it ended. Um, but I didn't have a lot of time to socialize while I was there because uh, I had just got engaged when I, uh, just before I started the course. Um, so my first year was spent working studying at Birkbeck and planning the wedding. <laughs> um, a wedding can be almost a full-time job and yeah. and so that and then the my second year um, uh, of the masters. Uh, my wife got pregnant, so we were, of course, very focused on, on uh, preparing the arrival of, of our first child. And and I was under pressure to make sure I, I finished the master's in time to, to, to then focus on, on the family. So I didn't socialize a huge amount, although I do have very good memories of of some of the uh, classmates that I had. And that's, to me, the, what's so special about Berkberg is that all of my classmates there... They all had professional experience of some kind. Most of them were still working, like myself. Some of them had worked in the past. And that really made the discussions very interesting because each one was able to bring in their own personal experience, professional experience. And um, uh, and there was a certain, I suppose, maturity there in terms of engaging in the discussions, which perhaps if you're uh, just recently out of school might not be quite the same, even though I also really enjoyed my my, my first uh, years at university. But that's, I think, what, make Birkbeck, uh, what makes Birkbeck so special is is that um, diversity of life experience. And, of course, is very international as well. And the whole story, the history of Birkbeck, how Birkbeck started with that famous lecture uh, near Charing Cross, I mean, that... I, I would recommend everyone to read a little bit about the history of Birkbeck before you go and study there or even while you're studying there because it's, it's quite emotional to see the reasons why uh, Birkbeck was was started up and how it's still fulfilling that task and that mission today. And, you know, it, it really is life and career changing and it was for me. Um, my master's perhaps didn't actually give me the job. It was a very important brick uh, or a very important part of me getting this job, but it certainly has shaped my thinking um, for the job that I do now. And I think that that is what makes uh, Birkbeck so, so special. Of course, also the the, the quality of the teaching. I, I remember uh, Bill Thompson, who is now at the OECD, but he was a senior. uh, lecture in politics and uh, Dionysius Dimitri Kapoulos, who I'm still in touch with, by the way. Uh, The quality of the teaching was fantastic. I loved the library. I loved the central London location. So there's so much that makes Berkbeck special. And if anyone is thinking about going there, I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. Thank you
1: so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. And Personally, really, I found this really interesting to get an insight into an area that I really didn't know a huge amount about, and, and to to it's really piqued my interest. It's really something that is kind of a I I had no concept of some of the complexities, some of the ways in which subnational, local, and national governments all kind of fit within each other, specifically within the EU, and and the work that that groups like European Committee of Regions do. So it's been really fantastic to get that insight. So thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and yeah, brilliant. We will keep in touch and speak to you soon.
2: Thank you very much, Helen. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. And I'm glad that, uh, well, I've been able to transmit a little bit of what I do and a little bit of the passion that I have for, for what I do. So thank you very much and good luck with the rest
0: of, the, of this wonderful initiative. That's the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Sean and Helen. If you're interested in finding out more about our Beck, please visit campaign.bbk.ac.uk to read more about the impact our community is having around the world. Thanks for listening and until next time.